there. As the kids are heading out real quick, before we get into the sermon, again, I'd encourage you to come to uh, our Sunday school classes, um, especially this next week. Um, we have a, a pretty important mentor of mine flying out. He's coming all the way from Pennsylvania. Uh, as I shared before, I would say this guy is a true father figure to me. Um, my dad will be speaking uh, next Sunday. And um, well, he'll be speaking on something that I actually asked him to speak on when we were going through Genesis. If you do not know who Wellhausen is or the JEDP theory of the Pentateuch, you need to know that and you need to know the battle and the attack that is contending for the faith on the first five books of the Bible. If you do not know that, I would implore you, be here in Sunday school. You need to have an understanding of the attacks on the Word of God. All right? and so, for what that's worth, you need to be here. I think we'll record it, but uh, you know, if you want to meet that guy, you can and ask him what in the world, you know, how'd we get this guy? So, um, we'll, let's look the Lord in prayer, and then we will go right into the text. Dearly Father, thank you that it's by your grace and your grace alone that we stand. That you are king forever, that we have been called to wait for you. That our soul can find satisfaction in you and you alone. So help us now as we open up these, these just two short verses, but there is so much here that pushes back against our own natural way of thinking, our own way of thinking that is so influenced by our culture. So help us to be people that clearly can see the truth around us and are not given by every whim of doctrine that are not pursuing after having our ears tickled so we can feel good about ourselves to go on living lives that are not biblical. So, dearly Father, help us. We desperately need it. We are so prone to wander. Give us clarity today, clarity that comes from your word, that we may live holy and righteous lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So the culture impacts you. Uh, it's a statement that you'll probably hear me say over and over and over again. The culture around you impacts you. Even if you're going to say, it doesn't impact me, I do this instead of that. I would literally go, you just got impacted by the culture. You're going to go, the culture does this. Well, I'm going to run to this side. The culture is impacting you. No matter what, you are always a product of your culture. This is what happens when we live in a sinful world. We are continually interacting with it, relating by it. Uh, if you're in central Wisconsin, I'm going to poke at even central Wisconsin things that we all, we all seem to understand, and, some, and we go, well, who decided that? And we're just going to go, well, that's just the way it is. All right, like I've said before, and I'll say it again, you all know, and this has been told to me multiple times, that a good cheese curd does what? Squeaks. How do we know that? Well, just because someone decided that if your food makes noise, it's good. All right, and so we just go with it, and everybody likes to debate on how squeaky they are, and no one went, wait a minute. You know, growing up in Pennsylvania, a soft pretzel that is good does not squeak. Because if my food made noise, we'd go, what is going on here, right? But out here we do that. Also, another one. So Friday comes around. I don't know how many times I've gotten invited on a Friday to what? Fish fry, because why do we eat fish on Friday? Because we do. Now, there's some religious issues that we understand where that came from, but I'll be honest with you, most of you just eat fish on Friday because you live in central Wisconsin, and all of a sudden it's Friday, and let's go have fish. Why don't you eat fish on Monday? Well, because we eat fish when? Friday, all right? And we just move on as if that's normal. I guess it is in central Wisconsin. Then we go to certain stores, and I love this jingle. We all know it. You can save big money when you shop Menards, right? I've never seen big money. I don't know what that means. 
And then we get really excited when they say we're going to overcharge you 11% and if you fill in a rebate, you can get that 11% back and you think Menards is sending you money. They're just giving you your money back. They are like, hey, I got my 11% off. You're like, that's just because that's what they do. And we all get excited when it's 11% season. Not only that, but we can go to places of worship. And these places of worship, there's one in Green Bay called Lambeau Field where you're trained when you get there. There's a little couple of notes that are played and then we all yell, go, pack, go. Because when the band plays, when Nebuchadnezzar's band plays, what do we all do? We all cry, go, pack, go. But not only that, at least in the Philadelphia Eagle world, we have our own praise and worship song that we sing. When these group of millionaires cross a man-made line playing a game, the whole stadium rises up and sings their praise and worship song to a bunch of overpaid people. And I won't sing it for you. And then we all have a spelling time at the end. And we all think how wonderful this is and how great it is, and one chorus doing that. We train our kids to sing that. When Before my kids were little, we did this, and culture just so crashes on us and impacts us, doesn't it? And those are just only a couple things. It's interesting, when we come to these verses here, we are going to see marriage, we are going to see children, and we are going to see work. And I'm going to, by God's grace, now, to go, this is what the text is saying. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible is implying as it goes through this. And the temptation is going to be to allow the culture around us to impact this. And so what the pressure continually is to, I mean, when I see a guy wearing a green shirt and different pants holding a ball that has been made out of a skin of a pig, run across a white line that has been painted randomly on the ground, and everybody gets excited about that, and then we all break out and sing in choruses, and someone goes, why are we singing a song? Like, who picked that? Well, somebody did, and away we go. You pause and go, wait a minute, what are we doing? Like, does this really matter for all of eternity? Why are we getting so swept away by some of these things that so mean so much to us, and then they're gone? So here we go. Let's look at the text. Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Adam, and Eve, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So let's get a little review here. And I want to make sure we're real quick. As we look at these chapter breaks... All right, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when Moses was writing this, which there goes next week's Sunday school. When Moses was writing this, as he was writing these things, he did not go to chapter 4 and write 4.12, all right? He is writing this book, and there's a flow to it. And sometimes, when again, chapter breaks got in there, so when we said turn to this spot, you won't go, where are we turning? These are for our own benefit that are in here. These are not in the original writings. And so the flow sometimes can be broken if we're not careful to follow this. And you'll see it more as we go on. But the flow of this has been Adam and Eve created in a perfect garden. They rebel against their creator. They're given the impacts of the curse. They are kicked out of the garden. And then out of the garden then that they removed, there's a cherubim place. You're not going back in. And so like most people... If you're in anything like just any ordinary person, most likely Adam and Eve did not go to the other side of the planet to live, all right? Most likely, and this is just pure speculation, but if they're like any other human being, they found the closest spot that they wanted to live in and just plopped down and here we go, all right? So I would argue if they're just like normal people, they're 
within walking distance of the Garden of Eden, as this is all playing out, all right? Now, again, you could argue where they went. We don't know, but I'm just saying if they're just like anyone else, they find a spot to live, and they go, let's get started with life. And notice what they do. Notice what happened. He says, and now Adam knew his wife, and she gives birth. This Adam knowing his wife is point number one, because what we're starting to see here is a biblical pattern of life. What is very important here is to understand the biblical pattern that God has made. Remember, Adam and Eve, we have their wedding ceremony when he brings them together. And it says the two became one and they're unashamed. So we have marriage back in chapter 1 and 2. And now what do we have after marriage? What we have here is children born in the context of a marriage relationship. All right. Now, for our world around us, that is now revolutionary. That children are to be born in a marriage context. This is what's happening in the text in front of us. As well as... And I'll even poke even further, intimacy is to be done in the context of marriage. And this is what we see here in the text, just screaming out from us. And may we not try to read into it, well, no, well, culture says, as long as two people love each other, it's okay. The Bible says, I'm sorry, intimacy, because it's a given. Notice it's a fact that is given. In reality and space, marriage, intimacy, and children are done in the context of marriage. So if we want to follow God's plan, guess what we do? Let you fill in the blank. But here's the struggle. Our desires cause us to want to do what? Not follow God's plan. And when we don't follow God's plan, all it brings about is heartache and sorrow. There is not a single person that I have ever been in a marriage counseling relationship with that that person said, my biggest mistake was I did not sleep around with more people before I met my wife or husband. No one ever says that. I will just be guarantee you, and I've never met anyone who probably ever will say that. Because they know the impacts of when you don't do things according to God's plan, the intimacy that is there for the beauty of the covenant of marriage, when it is stripped away and it is made a mockery because the covenant of marriage, we get the joy of all of the covenant fruits because we have made the covenant of marriage. But when you reverse them, you then downplay marriage and you downplay the fruit of the covenant. And so the question is, this is why we make the covenant and then the intimacy happens because it is done with the fruit and the joy of the covenant because the covenant says, here's the line, till death do us part, and because of these things, now we have this. And this is something we need to encourage and make a beautiful thing, not something that is to be hidden. This is something that God has said, here is what he's called us to do, and may we do this with all of its joy and beauty. Not only that, is notice what happens. Adam knows his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Children are a natural result of marriage. They are a natural result of marriage. When people get married, the natural result of marriage is children. Let me make sure this is clear. Children are not the next level of marriage. You do not get married and then you level up when you have a kid. This is what happens when you get married. You have a kid. There's no leveling up in marriage. It's not like you hit the next plane. The Bible speaks of this as marriage is a natural reaction. The result in marriage is children. Now, you may say, well, why are you making such a big deal of it? We live in a day and age where the whole idea of conception has been under attack. You can go back, I mean, way before the whole revolution that happened in the 60s and 70s, but we do not know in our culture yet the lasting impacts that that will have on our total culture as a whole. This idea that you can get married and then pick and choose when you want to have kids or whatever, I'm going to argue it's not a biblical concept. It doesn't say Adam and Eve, which is going to get to the next one. American Christianity does not, says, here's what American Christianity says, 
Get to know your spouse first, then have kids. That is not a biblical view of marriage. It's not get married, then get to know each other for a while. The question I always ask is then, if you want to get married and then get to know each other a while, what were you doing when you were dating? Because the Bible, the way the Bible speaks is you get married, and one of the results of getting married is children, and as children come, you get to know your spouse. But here's what happens. Because we live in a sinful world, here's the struggle. And this is a struggle that is right for Allison and I. We have kids, and guess what we start to do? Focus on our kids. And so now the thing we have in common is our kids, and we do not work on the relationship of knowing one another well. And what happens then is the kids finally leave, and I turn and go, hey, stranger. Because it's interesting all around us. And this is the part that just is like, you got to be kidding me. I don't know how many of you couples have sat there and said, we don't have time to date anymore because we have kids. And I'm going to say, no, 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 all right? For crying out loud. If you don't know one another, if you're not pursuing after knowing your spouse, that is your first and foremost commandment to know one another and know one another in context of having kids. You don't lay aside your marriage so you can work on your kids. The best way to work on your kids is to have a marriage where you love one another. But sin so tempts us because it is easier to put all of our focus on our children than it is to put it on one another and to love our wives like we should. And that is so hard. Because what does American Christianity like to push on us? They say this, get married, and then all the, less, the next things you want to do before having children, I'll be honest with you, listen to how selfish they sound. Because at the end of the day, are you getting your family ready for eternity? Or are you getting your kids ready to go, you know, before mom and dad had me, they went to Europe. Who cares in the light of eternity? But what you have so bought into this, this lie of this, and I'll be honest, when Alice and I first got married, we bought into that lie. Because at that time, it was you get married and then you think about yourself for X many years. And I would argue the Bible concept says if, you're not ex- if you don't want to live in a world where there's children, guess what? Don't get married. But what we want to do is have our cake and eat it too. And I would say we need to biblically think through these things. We need to train our kids to think biblically through these things because we, have, we live in a day and age where you can, the womb is under attack, not just from the secular world, but from the Christian world as well. And we'll get more into that. Knowing your spouse. Adam knows his wife. What does this mean that he knows his wife? And I'm not going to get graphic. I'm going to let you know that it is more than a mental knowledge. He's not like sitting there going, I can pick Eve out of a lineup, all right? Like, that's my wife. I know her. She's my wife, all right? This knowing his wife is a complete intimacy. This is not just physical intimacy. This is knowing her in his completeness because that same word of knowing is the same word that the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep in John 10, 27 says when he looks at his sheep and says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. It is not just a... thought process. Hey, I know you. You're one of my sheep. It is, I know you. I have died for you, and I live that you may have life. This is that knowing. This is the knowing that Adam and Eve have with one another. And next, even in these short verses, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. Adam and Eve here are fulfilling that command that God has called them to be fruitful and multiply. As Adam and Eve fill this idea of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, what we see here is Adam and Eve doing what God had called them to do. In the context of marriage, and in the context of this marriage relationship, we see children being born. What is Eve's response? 
And she conceived and bore Cain. Point number two, Eve praises God. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. What she is saying here in the, in the original language is a little clunky, but she's saying here, I've gotten a made thing, something made from the Lord. Something created by God, something from God. I have gotten it and I have named it. And what is she naming it? The form thing, the thing that God gave me, this made thing from God. It's a little clunky as we would say, and so the writers helped kind of make it a little bit smoother. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Another way of saying it, Eve names the child the formed thing that God formed. All right, and which is a beautiful thing. The thing that, and this is, this is the hope of it all, which is amazing. Because remember Genesis 3.15, that a seed is going to come? Eve here, when she gives birth to Cain, she is saying the form thing. And that the, some even scholars have said the one that is formed of like, to do what Genesis 3.15 was going to say. Because remember, when people are given prophecy, they wholeheartedly look at it and say, it's going to happen in my lifetime. This is biblical hope, that what he said he's going to do. And we see in the Bible that, well, it's not this child, but maybe this child. And this is Christian hope. It's the hope that what God has promised that he will do. And what did he do here? He said, a seed is coming from you, woman. And so she has a seed, and what is she doing if she's faithfully trusting God? She looks at the seed and says, you're the one that God has formed, the formed one, to help. We're going to find out real quick, it, sin and everything else is going to cause things to go down in a flaming wreck, but it is not wrecked, which is the beauty of it all. So, when we think this idea of what she says here, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Literally, the, I have gotten this form thing, Cain. It's a reminder that it is God who places the soul, the eternal living soul, in the human body. It is God who works the miracle of creation of new life. And Eve knows it. She knows it did not come from an evolutionary process of time and chance. She knows what she is saying again is, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Eve, the mother of all living, knew the child was not born but, anything by the power, but by the power of God. The power of God is what caused this child to be born. That is why her response, this is why all the response of any child that is born, any child that is given to us, is praise to God. Eve is praising God because she believes the promises of God that God is going to bring a deliverer. Turn with me to Psalm 139. The beauty that God has given us of children. In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 16, through 16. Where it says, speaking of God, you formed my inward parts. This formed here is that same concept. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when I had not yet had any of them. This crafting together in the womb is something that we as believers need to stand boldly behind. That God is the one who creates life. God is the one who is intricately working these children together in the womb. It's interesting their names, that she even names them Cain. 
is the formed one, or another way, formed or crafted one. It's interesting that Cain and his descendants will be working with metal and crafting metal. The blacksmith trade can be traced back to Cain and his descendants. And it's interesting when she names the next boy Abel. The word Abel literally means vanity or breath, which is sadly a picture of his life. I want to pause here and just take a moment and think about Eve's attitude towards these kids. What do we see here is Eve. She, has, she gives birth to a child. Not only one child, but another child. And her reaction to them is praise and glory to God. Her reaction is joy. And as she names them, saying, God is the one who gave me this child. All right, and so now we need to spend some time thinking through this for a moment as a church and as an American who lives in an American culture. And I'll try to say this as kindly as possible, but I do, truly do believe these from the bottom of my heart. A person's attitude towards children is a direct reflection of their attitude and belief about God. So I'm going I'm to like poke at all of us. All right, As a parent, when sometimes those kids that God has given me as a gift get underneath my skin, and I want to wrap them up neatly in a package and punt them into the next planet... What is it showing about my own nature right now that I don't trust God enough, that my faith in Him is not strong enough at those moments because I think that I know what is best to do with these kids at the moment, that I'm not seeing them as a gift anymore. I'm seeing them as a nuisance to my own fill-in-the-blank. So as a church, when we're sitting here and we hear the cry of a child, do we see that as a distraction or do we see that as a gift that God is giving us a child, the next generation crying? Do we hear there's a cry out for the gospel or a cry of just nuisance? Because it can be so easy to sit there and go, oh, kids are just a distraction. Kids are this. Let's just take them back. Let's get them out of church. We do not get them out of church because they're a distraction. We get them out of church because we truly do believe that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And we believe that kids learn in certain ways that adults learn. And kids need to be taught how they learn and understand. And we need to teach them the things of God at a very young age because that is where, by God's grace, He has given them the ability because isn't faith incredibly childlike? This is why it's a beautiful thing to watch kids as they accept the Lord as their Savior to see the, the simpleness of their faith. And this is why a church and their attitude towards the church and their attitude sorry, towards kids in the church is very telling. One of the things that I'll, I'll be honest with you as I sit there and as I look at the health of CBC, I, one of the things I look at is how are we doing at volunteering for the next generation, teaching them the things of God? Do we have people fighting over opportunities for that? Or do we see it as a death sentence to have to sit in the nursery? Where, how is, what is our reaction to that? And I'm talking about everyone that has breath in this room right now. Because it's very easy to say it's the parent's job. But I can guarantee you, each one of you, if you look in your own life, you will notice that it was not just your parents that had a huge impact on you. It was someone else that also pointed you to the things of God. And so many times we think we sideline ourselves. You go, well, what ministry can I get involved in? Well, what can I do over here? Here's what we can do. Let's start at the very beginning and let's just look at this for a second. When we understand that these kids are a gift from God, when we understand that these kids that God has given and trusted us with as a church... Here's how we need to think. And we need to think biblically as we walk through this. So let's go through this for a second here. Now, I've been around in churches long enough to run into people to think like this. 
We need to fight this thinking. So we'll pick on the Johnnies of this world, right? So little Johnny's out there, and little Johnny's being disobedient to his mom and dad. And mom and dad are trying to deal with him while they're trying to talk, while they're trying to do whatever, and Johnny's just being the sinner Johnny that he is. Here's how, sadly, we can respond if we're not careful. Can you believe that parent does not have his kid under control? Unbelievable. But if we have a biblical understanding of children, we'll go, whoa, he's actually obeying at this moment? What's going on there? Because folly is bound in the heart of a child. And so instead of sitting there and going, can you believe those kids aren't under control? How about we say this, get on your hands and knees and pray that God will give the parents the encouragement they need to keep raising their children in a God-honoring way. And when are you going to look and go, how can I encourage those parents? How can I encourage those, those parents that are struggling? Because if you, for those of you who've been in the parenting world and are not in it anymore, it is tiring. And you always feel that everyone is making judgment statements on how well you parent. All right, now I'm going to go even more personal. You know whose kids are supposed to be more sanctified than your kids? Yeah, fine. You know what stress it is and the battles that it is? Because your kids can disobey. But when my kids disobey, it's the what? The pastor's kid. All right, I want to help you out. The universality of sin impacts my family, too. All right? Like, I get angry at my kids. Probably I'll do it today. And if I haven't done it yet, because the only reason I haven't done it yet is because I got up earlier before they did. All right? But these things are they're right in front of us all the time. And we can get so caught up with this, instead of going, are we encouraging one another in our walks together? So how do we react? How do we interact with each other? We're, we're facing some fun, challenging times. Uh, Dana even brought this up as she was talking about the gift that God is of giving us a higher number of true seekers than we have had in the past. And so I would say we have moments like this of testing. Are we going to respond to it as a gift or be like in, when I taught in school when we go, hey, kids, we get to run the mile today. And they go, oh, I'm like, no, we get to. They're like, no, we have to. Do we view these kids that God is giving us as a joy to minister? Are we at a church, are we at the church level where we're trying to tell people, I'm sorry, we have too many people volunteering? Or are we on the other side? And I'm just laying that out for you to think through it because as this church goes and our attitude towards kids, it reveals who we really are. And it reveals where our money goes, it reveals where our talents go, and everything else. Do we really, truly grasp it? And what I'm talking about, each one of you. You may say, I don't have the strength and energy to do that. If your lips can move, you can encourage, and you can be on your knees praying every single Wednesday night that God would do His work and that God will lift up volunteers who can do it. All right, this is how we have to think as a church. This is how Eve is looking at here, and she sees this child and says, this is a gift from God. And now notice what the boys do. Point number three, the boys get to work. Cain, what does he do? It says, and she again bore uh, his, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. These two are working. Cain is working the ground. Abel is tending the flocks. Cain is a worker of the ground. Abel again tending the flocks. Both of these occupations come directly from the creation mandate in Genesis one twenty eight. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over everything that moves on the earth. 
So what is Cain doing? He's working the ground, tilling the ground that God has given him. Now that's going to cause him to eventually die because we've learned the curse of Adam is going to be working the ground until you return to it. And what is Abel going to do? He's going to tend the flocks. Again, this reminds us that work is not a result of sin. Work is not a result of sin. The hard, painful work that kills you is a result of sin, but work is not. The Bible is very clear about this. Because I would also argue, when you are laying in your bed Monday and the alarm goes off, your response there is not a response to work, it's a response how you view God. Because how you view work is a direct reflection of how you view God. Let's turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, and if I beat you to it, you can head over to Proverbs. But in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. I want to just take a moment here and think through this. The Bible literally says, whatever you're doing, you are doing it heartily for the Lord. So a biblical understanding of reality and of even work, no matter where you stand on the, on the scale, you just look right through that person you see God that you're working for. This is the thing that helps us even in the most horrific working situations. Because even if your boss is a jerk, you're not working for him. You're working for the Lord, and you are called to be a reflector of who God is to the world around you, bringing glory to Him. So if your boss gives you a ton of stuff to do that's going to kill you, praise the Lord, you're in eternity. But you work heartily, seeing straight through that for God and God alone. And these things are challenging, and these are hard. Um, the guy, when I was working landscaping, one of the things that uh, was, used to be a real struggle of us, especially in the fall, so where we worked... Um, we worked in a more of a um, resort area where people would just come down on the weekends. And so you can't mow everybody's lawn on Friday. So someone's lawn's got to be mowed on Thursday. And you're mowing a lawn on Thursday. And we're in the South Jersey area. And as you're mowing this lawn, when you're done the lawn, you get your blower out and you blow off the sidewalks. Well, right now, if you've noticed anything going on in the fall, there are always storms that would be coming through. You get these tropical storms that would come through and you'd have a day of rain. And where, where the rubber met the road for us is on Thursday, when you're tired, you're trying to get these lawns in because you know it's going to rain on Friday, and you're blowing off someone's sidewalk that you know on Friday it's going to rain cats and dogs, and all of a sudden, who knows what's going to float up from the ocean and cover the lawn you just spent time doing. Does it really matter if you blow off the sidewalk? Well, if you're working for yourself, and if you're only just working for them, they'll never know. But what does this verse tell us? You do just as good of a job as you're doing that because who are you doing that for? For him. Not for these people. And it was hard because you'd be sitting there going, oh, I forgot to bring the shovel with me to rake up the sand. You live in a beach area. Guess what's going to be there again? Sand. But what have we been called to do? Clean up. These are, the, these are real wrestle life battles that we all wrestle with all the time. Kids, as you're doing your schoolwork, Teachers, as you're teaching, fill in your occupation. What are you doing it for? The praise of man or the glory of God? That's why you do it for the glory of God, because you know what? You will never be praised, because remember, the number one thing we all are, are, are underappreciated and underpaid. But when we realize that we're working for God and God alone, we realize that all of these things don't matter in light of eternity. 
So Proverbs, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon says this when it comes to work. We see these two boys getting to work, and Proverbs reminds us again. In Proverbs 6, it tells us, if you want to get a good illustration of work, it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having a chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise up from your sleep? A little slumber, a little folding of the hands up to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and they want like an armed man. We're getting to their response to their work. Because we all see what's going to happen. They're going to be working and they're going to understand that the strength and even the power to do all this is going to come from God. And what are they going to do? They're going to take a moment and they're going to then go and worship God. But we're going to see even in the worshiping of God, what do we have? Major issues, right? One of them is going to get angry. And the anger then, the sin that is going to be there causing the murder of the other. So as we start to bring this to a conclusion, what we're seeing here is the turning of a, of a ship. We're seeing what life is going to be like outside the garden. What life is like outside the garden is a, the marriage relationship, children within the marriage relationship, and those kids being taught to work and to do what God has called them to do to the glory of God. Now, in a little bit of review here, I want to give us a, a broader picture here as we kind of start to wrap up everything in this sermon. So... Real quick, if you look, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2-3. And you'll see there the start of Genesis chapter, actually it's 2-4. As you look at Genesis 2-4 where you see it says, and the next generations and so forth. When, when Moses is writing um, the, Pente- the Genesis here, there's some headings where he's putting things together. And you see Genesis 2-3, it says there, these are the generations of the earth that they were created. The next heading is going to be over in, in chapter Six here, not six, hold on, I've got to find it here. I should have wrote this in my notes. You'll see, and these are the generations of, oh, in verse five here, chapter five, the book of the generations of Adam, and you created him, this is another heading, and so the point of saying that is chapters two through four go together, they're kind of a a continual thought. And what we see in this thought here is, remember, mankind and its rebellion And we have the rift of God and man found in Genesis 3. And before we turn and and bring that thought to an end, what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 4 here is a rift between man and man. And this is why the gospel not only deals with and solves the hostility of God to man, but what does it also reconcile? Man to man. Because we're going to see the great need of the gospel, the great need that our country needs, the great need we all need is the gospel. And this is why the command of Christ is going to go out. This is why we're going to see when He stands up in Jerusalem one day and they ask Him, what are the greatest commandments? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself because what does the gospel do? It reconciles us to God and then to one another. Because by nature we love ourselves. By nature we are selfish. So as we just look at these two verses here, we're going to see the beauty of marriage. We're going to see the beauty of family. We're going to see the beauty of children. We're also going to see the beauty of work. All played out and it sounds like things are just humming along. But the wheels are going to come off real quick. And you know what this has called us to do? To look to that Redeemer. To look to the one that will reconcile us to God and reconcile us to each other. 
This is why we need Christ. This is why we need the gospel. If you're here and you've never come to that place where you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you as you're walking out, please let me know. We'll talk to you. We'd love to share with you the truth that you can know. If you were to die today, that you would be with God. So let me pray and then we'll sing one more song and then I will encourage you to look at your own heart and your own mind and see what are the things God is teaching you that you need to do. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that we stand forgiven. So, dearly Father, help us. We desperately need you. We're going to see rather quickly the family that seems like it's moving along well fall into great heartache and sorrow, where Adam and Eve will get to see firsthand the cause of sin in their own lives. So, dearly Father, help us to be people who look to you and you alone for all of these things. Help us. We desperately need it. In your name we pray. Amen. If you could stand with us as we sing.